Welcome to Black Men Speak, a podcast that highlights ordinary black men doing extraordinary things. I am your host, Keith Dent. On this Father's Day edition, we are highlighting the work of Spencer Russell, CEO of Toddlers Can Read. As a former kindergarten and first grade teacher, Spencer was recognized for his work at the city, city of Houston, Texas, and the National Charter Network. But he didn't do it alone. This is part of my life that people don't see on social media, but okay. for, for four years, four of my six years teaching, I lived literally across the street from my school. Um, oh, okay. And I invited my kids to my house. I went to their house at a home visits with every kid. If, if, if they didn't feel comfortable with me coming in their home or maybe they didn't have a home, I'd meet them at a restaurant or at my house. I did parent workshops. I, I had parents teaching other parents. I taught other parents. Um, we translated it English to Spanish. I had a ton of parent volunteers. I was working with kids over the summer. I was with them at the library. I was starting sports teams for them. Like this was my life. But when he became a dad, his priorities changed and he wanted to focus more on his son and his family. So after teaching his son to read by two years old, he created a series of online courses to help parents and caregivers across the world teach their little ones how to read. On today's show, we talk about how kids really learn how to read and some of the fears parents have at raising kids and how Spencer feels about being a dad. And on that note, let's start the show. How are you doing today, Spencer? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Great, great. So, yeah, um, I would love to talk with you because it's interesting I'd love to hear your story. Why did you feel uh, the need to start this organization? It's a great question. I don't think I felt the need to start Toddlers Can Read specifically. I think for me, I felt the need to do something that I was passionate about, something I could be proud of, something that would help people, specifically something that would help kids. And at the point when I started Toddlers Can Read, this was 2021, you know, it, it was the heart of pandemic, lockdowns, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of people dying, a lot of sadness. And my son was also getting older. He had turned three and he's starting to get to the point where he's kind of conscious and cognizant of things. And the decision that I made at that point, working a job that I did not love, um, that paid a lot of money, but I wasn't passionate about and I didn't feel like I was really serving people in the way that I could, was that I, I wasn't going to die at my desk doing a job that I hated because it made a lot of money, I was, I was going to figure out something else to do with my life in a different way to kind of serve people. And I think Toddlers Can Read came from that, but it wasn't like I, I went into this with like, it's going to be reading or it's going to be toddlers. I found that along the way through thought and meditation and reflection in terms of how I think I could be of service and then also how I could make money to support my family. Oh, okay. And what actually industry were you in prior to, to this journey? So I was a teacher for six years. I taught kindergarten and, and first grade. I stopped teaching when we had my son because it, it just wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to be, I wasn't going to be the kind of dad and the, and the kind of teacher I wanted to be at the same time. And so my son took priority. At that point, I took a job at an educational nonprofit. We did professional development for teachers. And so I was coaching teachers and then I was coaching the people who coach teachers. 
And that's where I was before I decided that I wanted to work more directly with parents. Oh, I see. And so that nonprofit specifically, you didn't, you weren't able to have as much as an impact as you would have liked. I think we have things in our life, jobs, places, people for seasons. And, and I think that job served its season. It was my, my purpose being there wasn't to serve people. My purpose was to be a better dad. So I did the best I could at that job within the limits, within my goals. Um, and, and I have deep respect for a lot of the people that I work with and the work that the organization did. It's just not what I am most passionate about. I was teaching my kid to read every single night. I was okay. doing this hands-on. That's what I'm excited about. I'm more excited to work with parents and with kids than I am to work with teachers. Gotcha. And so everyone has their own time and season. You know, that was the season of my life that allowed me to be the kind of dad I wanted to be. And this is the season of my life now where I'm kind of running with this business. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. It makes sense. It makes sense. So mm-hmm. I'd love to go back a little bit because I just thought this was very impactful and I'd never really um, heard it before. Uh, in your bio, you had mentioned uh, in the first grade, you were one of the two of the lowest readers. Yep. Um, so I'd love to know, just to hear from you, how did you know you were behind and then how did it impact how you felt about yourself? It's a great question. Um, kids know they're behind very, very early. All kids know. You know, for me, I started school in first grade, but if I started in kindergarten, I would have known it in kindergarten. As a matter of fact, I did a half day visit to the local elementary school in kindergarten. I was homeschooled at that point. Okay. And I came home and I cried. I remember being so overwhelmed because I couldn't complete the worksheets. I couldn't color inside the lines or color at the same pace as, as the other kids. And it was really stressful, half day. So when mm-hmm. I got to first grade, it was full days of, of being behind. And I think whether it's reading or math, reading is the most significant in the early grades or any other subjects, you're pulled aside. You get extra time in these little groups. And so I knew when me and Joe Beth got called to the desk, we were mm. the low kids, right? Like some people call this the red group. Some people call it the low group. Some people put animal names on it, whatever else. But whatever the teacher calls it, you know, when you're in that group. And I've taken heat online from parents who don't believe that kids can be behind at this age, from parents who think I am the one creating this race. And, 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 and no, every kid is in it. Wow. And kids, like kids don't compare themselves against academic standards, right? Like there's the common core standards and all the stuff you're supposed to do at different age levels. Kids don't see that. There's the parent expectations and all the things the parents want, sometimes high, sometimes low. Kids don't see that. Kids compare themselves to other kids. So if you're one kid in a class of 25 and 23 of those kids read better than you, what do you think that's going to do to your self-esteem? You, 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 you know what I mean? Like you can tell it's, wow, it's, wow. But when you get to high school or college, you can certainly tell in, in high school too. But um, I am, I'm not alone in but, being a struggling reader or being aware of the fact that I'm struggling at, at that time. But you just, you don't think about that um, because I know it, it just, it sounds so simple because we, you know, the teachers aren't necessarily going to tell us that right away either. 
And even if they did, are we going to necessarily believe it? So the fact that you, because we just think, oh, kids are not adjust. They're not, a, you, you'll hear from parents. I'm sure you heard it. Oh, they're just not adjusting well to the their environment yet. Um, they're just used to being at home. Not that the fact that they are behind because they are struggling reading or math for that matter. I think most parents are generally confused where their kids actually fall across different skills and they don't know the way to develop those skills. And I'm not just here advocating on behalf of reading. It's every academic subject. It's every social skill. It's interpersonal skills. It's the ability to follow directions. It's behavior. It's everything. And these skills are so important. It's just no one's talking about the reading at this young age. Like there, there, there's plenty of people talking about social skills. There's plenty of people talking about behavior and the ability to interact with adults and, and, and other kids. Like that stuff is all important. But mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. when it comes to reading, there's this misconception that kids will just get it. And so maybe the teacher says, your kid is behind. And the parent's like, sure, they're behind, but we've read to them their whole life, so they'll catch up. No, they won't. Uh, research and statistics say, no, they won't. Oftentimes, the teacher doesn't even tell the parent. Like, there's not that direct of a relationship or a conversation to say, this is where your kid is. Or the teacher doesn't know because again, one of 25 kids across multiple subjects is very tough to know where every kid is at all times. So I am a a, a big proponent of speaking directly to parents, honestly and openly with parents about where their kids are. And this is never from my perspective. It's never about where other kids are. Mm -hmm. It's never about anything other than what the parent wants for the kid. If the parent notices that the kid, their confidence is broken, they're six, seven, eight years old, they don't have any confidence reading. Okay, where do we want your kid to get? I can help you get there. Parent of a two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, they want to build those skills. Okay, where do you want to get your kid at? We can get them there. So I personally don't play the comparison game. I'm not in a race. I'm not in a competition. But at the same time, I understand that when kids get to school, that's what's going to be happening in their head. They are going to be playing the competition game. Their teacher is going to be playing the competition game. And that's just kind of the schooling system that we have. Um, mm-hmm. Right. That right. makes sense. It's, yeah, it makes sense. Makes sense. And I, so I know you were working directly actually in a school and had received awards for yep. um, the effectiveness in your, I guess, your methods, I would assume, you know, teacher yep. of the year or whatever the, the awards were. So that did give you give you an opportunity to directly work with the kids. So what made you decide that you wanted to go in a different direction? I think the biggest reason I won the teaching awards that I won is because of my relationships with my kids and with their families. This is part of my life that people don't see on social media. But okay. for for four years, four of my six years teaching, I lived literally across the street from my school. Um, oh, okay. And I invited my kids to my house. I went to their house at a home visits with every kid. If, if if they didn't feel comfortable with me coming in their home, or maybe they didn't have a home, I'd meet them at a restaurant or at my house. I did parent workshops. I, I had parents teaching other parents. I taught other parents. Um, we translated it English to Spanish. I had a ton of parent volunteers. I was working with kids over the summer. I was with them at the library. I was starting sports teams for them. Like this was my life. And 
you know, coming to Houston without any family here, I made my kids' families my family. Uh, I was, I was, I was with them for holidays. I was, I was trying to make sure, um, you know, that I was plugged into something. Okay. And it just happened to be my students and their families who at that time, young twenties, like we were pretty much the same age. So all of that work and all of that investment meant it wasn't me teaching my kids and them getting these crazy test scores. It was me teaching my kids and their parents teaching them. And then oh, okay. right. getting these crazy test scores. What's, what, what's happening at school is, is getting translated at home. What's happening at home is translating to school. Like everybody knew everybody. All the parents had each other's numbers. Like I built a really strong community of people pushing in the same direction. It wasn't just a team of kids. It was a team of families. And so I see that work, you know, if you look at my charter school network or other teachers, they'll come mm-hmm. in my classroom and try and figure out what's going on. What's the teaching move? What's the thing? Why are Spencer's kids scoring 97, 98, 99? Mm-hmm. But they can't see it's that investment with the family. It's that relationship with the kid. It's getting the most out of that situation and really pushing in the same direction. And so I see toddlers can read as an extension of that work. It takes what I was best at in the classroom, which is meeting face-to-face with a parent, no matter what their educational background is, and helping them feel empowered to support their kid. And it's just doing that on a scale of now one and a half million people, you know, and soon to be more. And so I I, I see it as different, but I, I do see this work with parents as a continuation of what made me successful as a teacher. It wasn't the fact that I just knew more about reading than other people. Um, I think I invest more in parents than most educators do because I believe parents are more effective than teachers. Mm, okay. And I'm glad we you ended on that note because that would be my next question um, is about parents. What what are the parents' biggest fears that when you when you meet with them about about reading or just about their kids' education in general? There's a couple of big ones. I would say that the vast majority of parents uh, don't actually address their fears. I think there's a, 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 a big group of parents who are anxious that their kid is behind. Um, they're anxious that they could have done more and they haven't, um, that some people are doing more. Um, if you look on social media, you, you got a lot of parents who are tired, who are worn down, understandably so, many of whom aren't supported, um, don't have like the support or the resources they need to be an effective parent, certainly don't have the ongoing education or skilling up. Um, parenting, I think, is, 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 is the hardest thing to do in the world. It requires the most skill, but we give it the least support. And so it's, it's really challenging to, to do a job well they have been trained for. And so I think a big group of people, they feel that stuff and they push it down. So whether it's me with reading or someone else with behavioral support or someone else with some other kind of support, they, they say, no, like I would, I would, I would rather not engage because I don't want to fully think about what I could have been doing. I don't want to fully think about where my kid is at relative to where they could be. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of a whole different ball game in, in, in terms of what I think is actually going on psychologically in people's life. Um, 
I think the people who engage with me, the people who are open to say, what can I be doing better with my kid? That's really the people who are attracted to me. I'm not for everybody. Um, because if you come to my page, I am going to push you. Not just about reading. I'm going to push you in how you talk about your kid. I'm going to push you in your beliefs, in your language, in your expectations. I'm not going to settle for mediocrity. When it comes to parenting, I'm going to settle for always trying to get better. And so parents who are gravitated towards that, I think the number one fear is that they can't do it. They want this for their kid, but they don't think they have the teaching skill to be able to do this. Um, a lot of parents who follow me are not good readers. Some of them can't read at all. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Some of them have dyslexia. Some of them just had really negative experiences. And so I do a lot of work to try and break down the barrier of entry for people to understand. You actually don't need to be a very good reader. You don't need to be super confident. You just need to get started. And it's, 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 you're going to suck at the beginning. Everyone sucks when they start teaching, but you're, 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 you're going to stick with it and you're going to get better and be glad that you did. So it sounds like to me that the big draw and how you end up getting the kids is that the parents struggled themselves. And so they, they kind of, um, they're grasping at something that they would have wanted to have when they were kids. A lot of people, it is, it is that, and there's the, the opposite profile. So one profile is like, okay, parent who struggled, they want their kid to do better. That's me. That's like my profile. Another profile is like a parent who did really well with reading, highly educated, highly accomplished parent, or someone who just loved reading growing up. It meant a lot to them and they want to instill that same love and that same passion in their kid. And they can see a connective tissue between when their kid learns how to read, how they're taught how to read, and how that reading affects them later in life. But people come to me with all sorts of ideas from all different places with all sorts of fears. My business runs a crazy political spectrum, racial spectrum, socioeconomic spectrum. Like I am, I, 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 don't, I don't know many other circles other than like educating your kid where it really appeals to so many different people for so many different reasons. Right. Absolutely. Because, you know, any, any parents, it doesn't matter uh, what ethnicity, gender, you know, you want your kids, you want your kids to excel for the most part. Right. That's right. Right. And so you, so I, I do want to go back to, you know, a little bit of your story, because I know you had said in your family, you were probably one, you're the one that didn't, excel as well in school so my question was were you were you the were you the last child uh, yeah born. okay and so you're the last child so i would basically say your parents were probably tired <laughs> from uh from everything um raising the other you know the other children was it the, by the fact that they didn't spend as much time or was it kind of a natural thing you just weren't as at good at school as just they were I'll say this to keep it fair and to keep things in perspective. Yeah. All of my siblings went to Ivy League schools. Um, all of them have have masters or, or, or PhD degrees from Ivy League schools. So if you look at my family, our education going back to my grandfather, um, it is an incredibly impressive family tree. Mm -hmm. We have ridiculous degrees. Um, and for me to be quote unquote, like the least smart person in my family, the worst at testing, and then to graduate from Amherst College, uh, 
with like a three, eight, um, at a school with like a 12% acceptance rate, you know, like it's still what I accomplished is still beyond what many people. Oh, wait, that's impressive. Amherst. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. of course. Yes. So, I mean, it's, and, and I don't, I don't want to say to brag, I just say that to put it in perspective of like academically, I ended up doing very well. You know, I, I could go back to school. I'm choosing to work but like that context matters because I, I don't want anyone to think like, oh, he just sucked in school. But again, back to comparison, in first grade, I'm comparing myself against other first graders and I was behind them. By high school, I'm comparing myself to my family. And mm-hmm. I'm I'm looking at admissions to to Brown and to Princeton and to all these schools and I'm and I'm not getting in. And so, you know, I th- I think I think that's the bar. So um in, in terms of my parents, I, I look at them very similarly to a lot of the parents who follow my page and who support my business now, which is they just didn't have the knowledge or the resources to teach reading well. Some kids will pick it up faster. And so I can't tell you why my siblings picked it up and why I didn't. It, it could have been the fact that I'm growing up in a house with three young children around me and I'm not getting as much attention. It could be the fact that I wasn't as interested. It could be the fact that my mom mm-hmm. didn't have a strong curriculum to use. But I see. what I know is that good reading instruction helps everybody. And I did not receive good reading instruction. Gotcha. gotcha. So uh, I think what, what my parents had is they pushed for me. When I was behind in first grade, my dad was coming suit tie to parent teacher conferences to make sure the teachers knew he was serious and mm-hmm, i wouldn't mm-hmm. catch up you know so I, I always had them pushing behind me right if they had better resources if they had my program with me it, I, th- I think it would have made a world of difference and you know i'm, I'm i might be at a, a different place in life you know I'm, i might have gotten off those wait lists and gotten into in, into those same schools and who knows what i would have been doing right. i'm very glad i i took the path that i took well the thing is you're, you're exactly where you want to be so where you should be right. that's but, right so the thing and so what was also fascinating to me so i was a big hooked on phonics guy i used that with all my kids but and i don't know if that that's part of it but you had mentioned in your video that parents and teachers are taught the wrong way to teach kids how to read. Yeah. Right. So I'd love, I mean, and I know it's very technical, but I'd love to hear what you meant by that. And what is it? How are we taught how to teach our kids how to read and why is it wrong? Yeah. I, I should have brought my, my whiteboard and marker up with me, but I'll just kind of paint a picture okay. uh, out loud. So first hooked on phonics I don't have a big grudge with hooked on phonics. I think it's better than nothing. And I think that if you know how to use it, you stay consistent, you're working with your kids. That's the most important thing. So whether it's hooked on phonics or my program or, or, or something else, I, I deeply believe in parents having some kind of resource, some kind of tool to, to teach their kids. I think what's tricky about hooked on phonics is it doesn't give the parent a ton of expertise and knowledge and understanding of how reading works which is really the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Like you don't need a workbook or flashcards or, or books to teach your kid to read. Paper and pencil, you can be paper and pencil. I could teach a rock how to read. You know, it is, it is, it is about knowing how to do it. And so I believe the most powerful tool we can equip parents with 
is the knowledge of how the brain works. When the kid makes this mistake, this is what you say. When the kid is at this level, this is what you do next. When they're showing you this sign, this is what you test for. It's that knowledge. And I think when it comes to reading, to answer your question, a lot of parents, a lot of teachers, a lot of schools incentivize kids to memorize words. They incentivize kids to finish books and to do these things that look like reading. Mm. They appear to be reading, but they're not transferable to new words, right? Okay. So if you memorize, let's call it like a five letter word, W-H-E-R-E, like the word where, you, you memorize those five letters together, that one group of words, that, that one group of letters, that, that word says where, that's almost like storing a picture. You can see the shape of that word. The W is kind of low, the H goes up a little bit, the E-R-E is, is kind of low. It's, 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 it's like memorizing a little picture of a word. And what that does is every time you see that one word, that one little picture in your head, you can say the word fast. You go, where, where, where? When you see a word that is not that word, you have no idea what to do, how to approach it, how to read it, because the picture is different. And what we do is we help kids understand that picture that you've got memorized, that big thing that you know, it's made up of smaller things. And if you learn those smaller things, you learn those building blocks, the letter sounds, phonics, then you can build them into other words. You can see and break down other words. We don't have to rely on memorizing every word in the English language because there's too many words to memorize. We don't have to rely on looking at a picture for help because mm-hmm. we're not going to have a picture for help. But the sounds is what gives us 97% of words in English is being able to know the sounds and put them together into words. So I'd much rather teach a kid the letter sounds and the skill of blending them together mm-hmm. in in into words than I would teach them, okay, let's memorize this list of words that you're going to see a lot of times. Okay. So it's a word like alphabet, which is pretty long. It's about blending the word, the sounds together so they can, so a kid, a toddler could really uh, actually read it. It's not about right. memorizing the actual word itself. Right. Because if you memorize the word alphabet, you can read one word, alphabet. If you learn that A says A and L says U and P and H together say then you're on your way towards that word. That word is going to be down the line, right? We're going to read the word at uh, before we get to the word alphabet. But it really is two skills. It's it's, it's knowing the phonic sounds and things like PH saying that is part of phonics. That's just a little bit more advanced, but we learn those 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 two letter sounds, those three letter sounds, those vowels. And the other skill, the technical term is called phonemic awareness. It's the ability uh, to hear and manipulate sounds. So if you know, A says A, L says U, P says F, and you can hear A, U, A, B, A, T, and combine that together, you can read, or if you can get a u f alf but but et bet alpha bet, you can piece it together. Mm-hmm. Right. There's reading strategies. Blending was the first strategy. Chunking into syllables is the second strategy. This can all be taught, and it and it and it sounds a little bit technical. It's really not. 
uh, it's just hearing and putting the, the sounds together. Once you teach it, you can do it for almost any word you see. And that's funny. And, and maybe I never thought of it this way, but I remember, I remember when we learned how to read, we had to do those things. Like if we, like the, for example, that's what we would have to write. We would have to write that like 10 times, you know, they had, they had that special writing mm-hmm. for toddlers. And so are that, are those some of the things that they don't do now as teachers? They don't do that anymore. I think it depends on the school and it depends on the curriculum. Okay. There's a really big debate uh, within education now and parents are starting to become aware of it because of a couple of podcasts. This is featured on New York times, the daily this last week. Um, there's a big podcast called soul to story that talked about this, but essentially there's been these reading wars in America over the last couple of decades where, uh, you know, different politicians, different, uh, different curricular groups, uh, have been like pushing and implementing different programs. They've argued back and forth. One of the biggest ones in America is called readers workshop or readers and writers workshop by Lucy mm-hmm. Calkins. And this is a curriculum focused on just like exposing kids to books, just letting kids read and giving them a focus to read on and sitting at different places in the room and getting comfortable and trying to make reading feel special. And obviously that doesn't teach kids how to read. Um, you know, right, it's, right. It's, it's, this is the kind of stuff that is is typically made up by wealthier, whiter Americans. Uh as a model for how to teach reading, uh, not taking into account that not every kid is going to have access to a tutor to help them catch up when they fall behind, that not every kid is going to have parents who are teaching them how to read at home using resources like Hooked on Phonics or other things. And so there are many schools who have not been implementing systematic phonics. There are many others that have, and then there's schools in the middle that do a mix of phonics and some of these, I would say, lesser reading strategies like a lot of memorization, a lot of looking at the pictures. And if you give a kid an option between this skill that's going to take time and effort of learning the sounds and learning how to put them together, and this skill that takes very little effort, which is looking at the picture and guessing a word, that kid is going to take the easier path every time. You give them a longer route, you give them a shortcut, they're going to take the shortcut. And there's only so long that this works for. Um, you know, I, I I could I could talk about it forever, but it's it's I'm sure you it's, could. <laughs> I'm sure you could. Now the a really good example that I think people will understand is if you look at math and how a lot of us were taught to do math. Um, we were taught things like cross multiply and divide. I I, I have those words in my head: cross right. multiply and, right. and divide. Mm-hmm. I don't actually know what that means. Like, I I don't I I know if I want to solve this fraction equation. I draw a line. Uh, it's it looks like a butterfly after you, you circle them. I know PEMDAS. I, I know what each letter means, but I don't know why. I don't, I don't know why you do the parentheses and the exponents and the multiplication and the division. So when I get to these things in any other context, I can't solve the problems. When I think about it in real life, I don't understand it. I memorized a bunch of acronyms and a bunch of rules and a bunch of pictures. As a result, I couldn't do college level math. You know, I got I got A's in high school. I stayed away from math in college. As a result, United States math is like 36, 37th, I don't know, way down the list. 
compared to other countries because other countries teach kids how to think about math. They teach kids what five looks like, how to break five in different ways. We teach kids what the number five looks like. We teach kids mm. how to count five. Right. We don't teach kids to understand five. And it's the same thing with letters. We teach kids to, to memorize these letters, to memorize these words, but we don't actually teach kids what those letters mean, what sounds they make, how to put those things together. And it's that deeper level of understanding that takes a little bit longer at the beginning, but that sustains you through the rest of your education. Mm. Oh, that's so deep. That's so deep <laughs> to even think about. Um, and I'm sure you blow parents away when you probably give them that, that analogy, but and I'm not trying to put you out of business or anything, but I do find this fascinating because, of course, in our low to moderate, moderate income schools, yep. um, and it sounds like you kind of worked in that uh, that community, the parents struggle. And so what is it that they should be, let's say they don't get a chance to, to utilize your curriculum or your program, what are some of the things that they should be doing to help their kids learn how to read well i give a lot of stuff for free so if if we think about why my social media accounts and kind of my presence online is growing so quickly why you know about me it is because i give so much information for free so if you have zero expendable dollars you can spend five minutes on my instagram page pick up three to five tips and strategies for teaching your kid how to read and get it done. Um, I, I will, I will, I will never ever accept the excuse that someone doesn't have time. They do. This is not 10 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day, beginning this like two or three minutes. Um, this can be during a bath. It can be during a meal. It can be in the car. You just have to know how to do it. Right. Me versus hooked on phonics, hooked on phonics, you're going to have to buy the program, have it come to your house, mm -hmm. do that day one activity, follow the directions, whatever. Like me, I, I will put the knowledge in your brain of how to utilize the times that you already have, of how to turn this into a game, of how to build this into a routine that you can follow. A couple minutes a day, learning through play. I really do think anybody can do it. And I think that it is not, I think I know that it is a lot of low-income families uh, who are doing these tips. I have a tremendous following in India, in Egypt, in countries where folks cannot afford to purchase anything from me, but they can watch my free 30-minute training. They can watch my Instagram page. They can utilize all the free quizzes and free resources and YouTube videos that are available. And we have people just transparently with a lot less money than most folks in the US, um, a lot less resources who are making this happen with their kids at home because they've invested a little bit of time in learning and then they've been putting it into practice with their kids a couple minutes a day. That, that's, that's awesome. And I guess I just, that does kind of shape what we, how we view our education. I think we just expect, you know, the experts to provide it and not necessarily do the work um ourselves to make sure it gets done so i think i think we spend time on the things that we prioritize and until we realize that we're never going to think we have time right. you, you know you, you know what i mean like i've i've um i've had to do an audit of how i spend my time during the day and 
today, I think I've wasted two minutes total. It's been nine hours and, and 41 minutes. And so that's a productive day because I, 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 I audited that time and I thought about it and I prioritized that I was able to get to the gym and make time for this podcast and do other things. And granted, there's like privilege that I, I, I have in my life, but I've got days like today where I'm, I'm really thinking ahead of time. What's my priority? What do I need to get done today? And there's days where I, I just wake up and I go. I don't think about it. I don't prioritize it. And it's those days where I waste the most time. It's mm. those days where I don't have the time to do it. Mm-hmm. It just, it just, it just gets away from me. Okay. And this is a, a decision. It's not like a popular statement, but I believe people have to decide to do it. A lot of people spend 30 minutes on Instagram, watching my stories, looking at my videos, doing stuff, and then saying that they don't have 30 minutes to watch my workshop. And it's like, you do. Especially if you're on social media already. <laughs> People will be on social media sending me messages about how they don't have time to watch my stuff. And so I'm not here to like change someone's mind and be like, yes, you, you do have time. I don't tell that to them, but right. it is true. They do have time. It's just not a priority. And my business exists. My resources exist really for people who choose to make this a priority. And they don't need to, but when you do make your child's reading a priority or you make their education a priority, like magic, you will find the time for it. Right, right. So a couple more things, because uh, I know um, you're you were teaching your son, yep, uh, how to read. So, and the curriculum or that you created, did you already have it made or already created, or you were making it up as you went along? Uh, and then the follow-up question to that, what surprised you most about your son's development as you were teaching him? Yep. Uh, a little bit of both in terms of did I have it made or did I make it up? Um, I, I, I pulled from my experience teaching kindergarten and first grade okay. to work. I pulled from the things that made me good as, as a teacher. I, I pulled from my strengths. One example is the ability to to, to track data. I had uh, data on every kid in my class every day across like 30 different categories. So if you walked in my room at any given point in time and said, hey, where's Jeffrey at with his reading? I can tell you, Jeffrey can blend this many sounds. He can segment this many sounds. He can rhyme these kinds of words, but not this. Um, He's reading these kinds of words, working on this skill. Like that's what I did really well. And I kept spreadsheets for it. And uh you know, that, that, that level of detail was really how I pushed kids and I would provide it to families and they'd provide me with data back. And, you know, that stuff informed my approach with him. And I was like, okay, I've got to be really good with tracking his data. I've got to, I've got to bring in these strategies that I know work. What was different though, is that he was so little, you know, you got to keep 18 months, two years old, like he can hardly speak. So to be working with a kid at that stage, I had never done it before. So some days it's trying stuff and being unsuccessful or say, you know, we did that lesson for too long. That lesson was too boring or that lesson was, was too short. He could have done more, you know, he was more focused on, on this than that. And it was a ton of learning. And that was for, kind the, of- and for the audience. What, what age was this? So, uh, we started doing letters at 18 months, 18 months. That's impressive. Uh, at, at, 
at at two, really at like 24 months is when I made it a goal that he was going to learn how to read. And that's when I started looking on Google, seeing if there's any programs that existed for two-year-olds that were not, um, seeing if anyone believed a two-year-old could read. They did not. Um, that's part of my toddlers can read as the name because everything said toddlers can't read. Um, so it's not, not the just because the normal benchmark in the U S is what, at what age do we want kids to really kind of start reading four or five or five, six, five, five to six. Okay. It kind of depends that five to six year is kindergarten. Right. And what you'll typically see is, is hopefully kids are reading CVC, which is a consonant vowel consonant words things like mop, pit, gotcha. Gotcha. right. Um, you know, if, if kids can read those kinds of CVC words, well, at the end of kindergarten, they're in a pretty good position for first grade where they're going to start to learn longer words and right. different vowel patterns and, and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, but we got, you know, to CVC words, probably like 27 months or so. Um, it was, it was 25 months. He read his, his first word, he read a two sound word and then other two sound words, random words, words he hadn't seen before, then we went to three sounds, then four sounds, then five sounds. And, you know, um, what surprised me, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think I was surprised. You know, it's, 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 it is shocking to see a kid that little reading well. Um, full transparency, I, I have I, I've never seen a kid his age read as well as he does. You know, there's these videos that get all these views online, going viral with little kids. Most of them are like fake videos. The the kid is is not actually reading, and you you can tell pretty clearly that it's fake. Some of them are real. Um, you know, I don't post him online like that. So I, I, I never used, I, I have all these videos on my phone, but I don't share them. Mm-hmm. But what he could do was incredible, but not surprising because my whole career to that point is working with kids that other people didn't believe in kids that other people didn't think could do certain things that would just destroy people's expectations. You know, like, mm. that, like, like that's what we did. We took pride, me, my kids, their families in outperforming every other kid in Houston. Like that was the goal. We, we don't care what school someone goes to, how much money they have, where they live. When it comes down to it, we are better behaved. We are better at reading. We are better at math. We are happier. We're having longer recesses. Like we are competing in these things. We're having harder dance parties. So that's my experience coming in. That's my mindset that's what he was able to do. So, you know, very surprising to other people. When I launched this business, um, even friends and family didn't know that he could read because we didn't share it. We, we didn't publicize it. I wasn't out here bragging about it. So that caught them off guard because by any other measure, he's just a normal kid. If anything, a little bit behind on certain milestones. But I think the fact that he could do it so well was a bigger push for me to start this business because I know how he was born. I know what his skill levels were. I knew he wasn't anything special, but to see him reading at that age, like 
that means other people can do this too. You, you know, you don't have to be an award-winning teacher to do this with your kid. You just have to know how this stuff works. Right. So you're saying at that age, there were some developmental delays that, that were brought to your attention from, I guess, pediatrician or something like that? I wouldn't call it developmental delays. I would say as like a highly competitive parent, um, Ian, as a probably more importantly, a first time parent. Okay. Oh, yes, of course. We're tracking those milestones. Right. Right. So, and again, back to peer group against friends, against other kids. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's, he certainly wasn't hitting any milestones early. There was a couple physical ones that he hit late. So, in terms of his ability to clap, um, that was like several months, maybe even like six months past what it should have been. Um, oh, I see. Jumping, jumping with two feet off the ground, sign language. There were, there were just other, there were these other skills. Right. Uh, we looked at the timer and we said, okay, he's supposed to have hit this. His friends are hitting this. He hasn't hit this. And I'm, I'm not going to say it's a developmental delay. I think he's still within that normal zone, but right. he certainly, certainly wasn't ahead in reading. And shortly after he started reading, Oral language were really the two domains where it's clear, okay, he's he's years right here because that's, he's been talking. And that's so funny, parenting. I'm thinking, I, I don't remember, <laughs> I don't remember uh, Peter said, oh, okay, clap, clap for me so they see where they are. I mean, but I, you know, all my kids are all old now, so maybe things have changed, but uh, it certainly puts a, it puts a lot of pressure on parents, you know, when you, if you're uh, the, the pediatrician's got a chart on things that they're looking for, but it's, it's, uh, it's understandable. It's understandable. So that's, that's pretty cool. So since a couple, two more, since this is going to be the father's day of edition, yep. what are some of the, what are some of your, um, how do you feel about being a dad? What are some of the things that excite you about being a dad? What are some things that um, still give you a pause about being a dad? It's a really good question. I don't know if I've ever thought about how I feel about being a dad. Yeah. Um, let me say this. I think I'm in a unique position because I'm a dad who has a very large audience of moms. And so I spend more time thinking about being a parent than I do about being a dad because I'm talking across that line of difference. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to two other parents. So my biggest focus, my biggest mindset is around effective parenting, whether that is a mom with her kids, which it typically is, or the occasional dad who will message me or interact or buy the courses or that sort of thing. So. Oh, wow. Did I, I stumped you. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think, I, I have some very real thoughts and I'm 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 kind of sifting through them in my head, trying to decide if if they're too real or if they're appropriate. Um, I'll talk and then I'll get there. Uh, my feeling on on being as a dad is I love it. I think it's incredibly hard. Um, I think I'm doing a good job, and and I think I need to be doing a much better job. I think a lot about ways to get better, uh, being on my phone less in front of him, being more kind of mentally, psychologically present when I'm, I'm, I'm with him. I think a lot about 
you know, what he does, what he experiences and how I interact with that, how I respond to that, what that means about how he grows up. Think a lot about my weaknesses, um, you know, places where I think um, I could have been coached better or raised better or parented better to have uh, either like psychological toughness or to have a growth mindset about ability or to have perseverance. A lot of skills I've learned as, as an adult, I wish I had it as a kid. And so I've, I think a lot about how to do that better. And I, th- I think that with things that matter, we should really be focused on how do we get better at them? I don't, I don't beat myself up over this, but I, I do spend a lot of time thinking about how to be a better dad to him and what that means. And, and I think, I, I think that's what our kids deserve. I have a very, very, very strong belief about parenting, whether it's mom, dad, grandparent, aunt, uncle, whoever is taking care of the kid, that we don't speak negatively about our kids, that we don't post our kids for attention. We don't post our kids for validation, that we don't use our kids as a scapegoat or an excuse for the things that we're not doing or accomplishing in our lives. But the same kid that we prayed for, that we asked to be here is the same kid that we protect. And so with my son, I'm, I'm, I'm highly, highly protective. You know, being a father is the most important role in my life. And he's going to go through life with his mommy and his daddy, both like pushing behind him to support him and also walking in front of him to clear the path. And, um, you know, I, I think, I think, I, I don't know if I have advice for other dads other than to just share how I approach it. I think everyone can approach it differently, but I do think we should be approaching this with a high level of intentionality and thought because whether we're thinking about our actions or not, whether we're doing a good job or not, whether we're improving or not, our kids are affected by all of it. Um, And so I, I think it's the best that we can do to really just think about it, to be intentional and to work to get better. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's. No, I think that was, I think that was great. That was, that was rather deep. Um, and now, and it explains why you're not really on Facebook. <laughs> so, <laughs> because, you know, Facebook yeah. is really all about, you know, that kind of platform, especially wishing your kids have birthday, graduation, this and that. And so uh, it makes sense. So, but um, Spencer Russell, toddlers can read. I will have you plug your thing in a minute, um, but easy. Here's an even more deeper question, uh, yeah. which I always pose at the end, because, you know, especially we we as Black men are always kind of plugging away, uh, doing what we need to do, really not only to help ourselves, but our families and, um, and, and people that we care about. But sometimes we don't always necessarily think about ourselves. So my question I always end with uh, in my um, shows is, how are you feeling as a Black man? growing up in America right now. Yeah, that's an, a, another another good question. Um, I'm at a really good place in my life. Um, I, I think I don't I don't try to ignore the reality of being a black man in America. Uh, I know I know how people view me. Um, and I know how that changed depending on where I'm at, the zip code I'm in, what I'm wearing, how I hold myself, what people know about me, what they don't know about me. Um, 
certainly I'm not insulated from this on social media as someone with a lot of followers, a lot of reach. Um, I get racist shit every day. Um, I get, I get, I get messages. I, I get, I get comments. Um, I get my, my, my credibility questioned on, on a daily basis from white women on the internet. You wow. know, it is what it is. Right. Um, Personally, I will I will speak for myself. I will I will not speak for other black men. There's different privileges I have of 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 being lighter, of having a white mom, of having the education I have, the degree mm-hmm. I have, the income I have. You know, it's it's all of us have different uh, levels of experience. We 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 have different things we can and can't get away with. Um, but I, I will say personally, the last really five years of being a parent, but the last three years of running this business, I've had to focus on what I can control. What's within Spencer's locus of control. Mm-hmm. And what's within my locus of control is how good of a partner I am, how good of a dad I am, how well I'm running my business, how many families I'm supporting, the quality of my courses. Like that's what I can control. My exercise, nutrition, you know, trying to take care of myself, take care of my body, take care of my mind, all this stuff. And I've been, I've been focused very, very inward to build myself and to build my family and to build my business so I can serve more people outward. The, you know, I'd say the decade before that, at least the last eight years before that, I was focused very outward. I was very, very, very tuned in, uh, to the politics of the country, to what was going on, to the news. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, my emotions went up and down and up and down and up and down. Um, and the reality around me hasn't hasn't changed. You know, it's 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 still the same country, whether it was Barack or whether it's Trump or whether it's Biden, we're, we're, we're still in the same place. That hasn't changed. I think just my mindset around it has. Mm-hmm. And I think the way that I get through it is I focus on, on what I can control. Right. And I know for a fact that if I stick to this, I do what I'm supposed to do. I make these courses in this program better. I'm going to be helping little black and little brown kids in America, as well as other little children in America have a better shot at a good education, at being confident in school, at doing all those other sorts of stuff. Right. Like that is my little contribution, Right. little contribution to the bigger picture is like what I work on disproportionately affects low income communities and communities of color. Like it disproportionately affects them to have access to free resources means a lot. Right. So right. long answer to the question. I, I think like the short answer is like, I'm good. I'm not ig- ignoring it. I'm just choosing where and how I focus my energy. And I'm trying really hard to protect that from people who want to see it get taken away. Right. Well, I, I do have to say that um, what you're doing, I think, is transformative. Uh, I actually was a principal for a day in a school uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I was reading to them, and I was very kind of surprised at some of the kids' lack of reading. And I went to the teacher and I said, hey, there's this brother out there, Spencer Russell. He has a program that can help kids how to learn how to read. And I think you should follow it and she she followed it immediately so i do think what you're what you're doing is um like i said um why you're on this pot on this podcast to begin with and i'll do what i can to make sure 
everyone that is in my sphere is able to access what you're doing because I think it's a, so much. I think it's awesome. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. And, and and I'd say the same thing about what you do and who you support. Like it's 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 work that needs to get done. Um, and I appreciate you sharing and sharing with your platform. Thank you. So um, I will post it all of your um, handles when I get a chance. But live, how can people start to follow you and, and take uh, advantage of your work? I am on every social media platform except for those kind of like alt-right ones that <laughs> have recently popped up right uh, i'm not on those yet yeah. so I, I i would say first line of defense is you know whether you are on facebook youtube instagram tiktok pick your poison follow me i've got short videos there and then if you want the good stuff check on my website i have i have i have paid courses that's how i support my family that's where like the really good stuff is and i also have a very high quality 30 minute free training i've got free quizzes whether you're choosing to like invest money in this or not, I've got something on my website that's gonna help you out. And I'm not gonna make anyone feel stupid. I'm not gonna make anyone feel like they can't do this. Uh, I don't care how old your kid is, uh, young, old, whatever their ability is, if you wanna be able to support them, I've got something to help you do it. Great, great. Well, this is uh, Keith Dent from the Black Men Speak podcast signing off. And Spencer, once again, thank you for all your support and everything that you do. Of course, appreciate it, man. Spencer, thank you for a wonderful conversation and a great way to honor Father's Day. I'm sure your son and your entire family will reap the benefits of your love and dedication, not only to your family, but for the countless others that have entrusted you to support them and help their kids. If you have a toddler in your life, or a child for that matter, that is struggling with reading, you need to join Spencer Russell's Toddler Can Read ASAP. Black Men Speak was written, produced, and edited by me, Keith Dent. You can follow Black Men Speak wherever you get your favorite podcasts, like Apple or Spotify. Finally, if you're a regular listener, you know we always like to end with a quote. And this one comes from Carter G. Woodson's The Miseducation of the Negro. Real education means to inspire people to live more abundantly, to learn, to begin with life as they find it and make it better. This is Keith Dent from the Black Men Speak Podcast. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Peace.